Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, however the case may be, as Art used to say. And you know, it's really interesting. Um, he kind of set the template for this following on, you know, Long John Neville decades and decades ago. I remember at this time of night, you know, under the covers with a flashlight listening to a transistor radio. Has anybody heard of a transistor radio lately? It used to be the rage, and now, of course, everybody has a smartphone which is not a transistor device. It's actually integrated circuits, and we won't go any further in that direction. However, speaking of communications devices, the, the way this whole show kind of got started is there was a story earlier this week about an Australian woman who was walking on a beach, uh, apparently outside Perth. Remember Perth, Australia, which turned on the lights for John Glenn when he orbited the Earth back in 1962? And she found this bottle on a beach at the low tide and kind of took it back. And I'm, I don't know the details of the story, but it wound up, they, they opened it delicately. And lo and behold, there was a, a, a rolled up piece of paper inside tied with string inside the seal bottle with the cork and all that. And it turned out to be a classic message in a bottle. We're going to be talking about messages messages in bottles, both figuratively and literally tonight, as part of a larger frame. Something is going on, and Elon Musk, a few days ago, put into space the most remarkable message in a bottle. And there's been a lot of um, interesting discussion about why he's really doing it. I probably have one of the best people on the planet to talk about this tonight. It's my old friend, our old friend. He's not that old. Dr. Joseph Farrell, who has a doctorate in patristics from the University of Oxford and pursues research in physics, alternative history, science, and, you know, <clears throat> the strange stuff. Joseph was raised in South Dakota. And he has a wide range of jobs in his background, including currently as a full-time author and researcher. His many books include the Gita Death Star Trilogy, Reich of the Black Sun, the SS Brotherhood of the Bell, Nazi Internationale, Secrets of the Unified Field, Roswell and the Reich, The Cosmic War, Grid of the Gods, Saucers, Swastikas, and Psyops, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, Thrice Great Hermetica and the Janus Age, The Third Way, Transhumanism, <clears throat> and many, many others. I mean, we could spend the entire night like, you know, they say people are interesting if they read the phone book. Well, we could be interesting just reading Joseph's written works, which are all available at his website, which I think we probably should list there. That was a kind of a hint to our producer. We should put the Giza um, link up there. Anyway, his latest book is Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery, which, um, well, it kind of blows the lid off, not only the mainstream media's consensus view that 9-11 was perpetrated by a terrorist network, but even alternative views suggesting there were two levels to the attack. Farrell says there were at least three. The Twin Towers were down by the force of an exotic energy weapon, one similar to Tesla energy weapons. Oh, my, my, what is that? Something just did something, and I don't think we want to, to have it do that. It sounds to me like blog talk hung up. So we have our crack engineering staff behind the scenes will be working on blog talk. And uh, yes, I'm now getting little notes saying we lost blog talk. 
see the bad guys really don't want this kind of stuff to to uh, to be on the air so without further ado since we have our own separate stream and uh we'll we'll tell you later in the morning how you can get to it um joseph welcome to the other side of midnight where the bad guys have already struck a blow for lack of freedom for having me back, Richard. Just one uh, correction. The last book I published is a book called Hess and the Penguins. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Hess and the uh, subtitle uh, is The Holocaust, Antarctica, and the Strange Case of Rudolf Hess. But other than that, <laughs> thanks for having me back on. You know, we need to do a, that book as an entire night, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So until I have a chance to read it, we, we can't really do that. Sure. Um just before airtime, we were talking about bad guys doing weird things. They've done it to us again. They've killed Blog Talk. Now, mm. fortunately, we have, in the old NASA mantra of no single point failure, we have our own server now, courtesy of Chris Bell, who is manning the, uh, the, the uh, uh, ramparts. And Keith is busily working to try to get us back on Blog Talk. See, Blog Talk is how we get phone calls into the right. show. So until we get dog blog talk back, we will assume that the technology will some at some point work. But you were telling me that there's a bunch of weird stuff going on, that it's kind of like the old guard is going under undergoing kind of a death throes, and they're doing these last minute desperate throw spaghetti on the wall, mm -hmm. and so kind of pick up on that. How many other people well, in our circle have been attacked by them? Well, I can tell you for a fact that in the last week and a half, um, my friend uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, who has a website, of course, Solari.com, uh, they took her entire website down. In fact, I just talked to her tonight, and she told me that, that the attack was just overwhelming. So she just decided to go ahead and roll out her new website rather than try and keep the old one up and running. But yeah, they took her down, and that was a day after she posted a, uh, a an article about the pension fund fraud and how they're robbing pension funds and so on. And she posted that, and then bang, it was taken down. Uh, she just then decided to post it free on the internet, not in her subscribers area. So mm -hmm. you know, it's out there anyway. But yeah, that has happened to her. Uh, you know, there's been the problems that you've had. I have not had anything like that. Knock on wood. Oh my but god! Have, you know, I've had <laughs> I've you know I've had little things happen like my my blog posts on my website are automatically supposed to post on Facebook. But in many cases, they don't. So I have to do it manually if I catch it. So just a lot of little stuff I've I've seen going on. Um, there's been some other radio shows, podcasts that I know that have had some difficulties. So, yeah, it's, it's across the board. It's you and, and Catherine everywhere. Okay, let me ask this then. Do you hmm. think this is an organized effort or, as I've said a couple of times in the last few weeks, it's basically a bunch of sickos and crazies who get get their jollies just screwing, you know, those of us trying to do something, and they kind of fasten onto you like a lamprey eel, and they just <laughs> do it because they have nothing better to do. Well, I think that's part of it, but I think that's part of the culture of these uh, Mr. Globaloni and, and his psychopathic elite. I really do think it's part of their culture. So I think it's a little mixture of both, actually. It's, it's a little organization, and it's just also a bunch of sickos, you know, playing around with people and, and upsetting them. See, the reason I don't think it's organized is because all it does is call attention 
to the right. fact that this program or that website or that researcher is doing something and someone doesn't want you to pay attention. So, of course, right. is human nature. Everybody pays attention. So why would that be a policy when it actually backfires as soon as they do it? Well, maybe, you know, we have to consider the other possibility. Maybe it's a policy of people that want people to, to look at websites like ours. Oh. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I so don't it's know. the I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like standing in front of a huge bunch of mirrors. <laughs> yep. Okay, so let's try to focus if we can, on what I wanted to talk about tonight, which is messages down through time. Mm -hmm. um, I have a guest I'm trying to get hold of. His name is Trevor. I forget his last name. But he called me years ago, and he wanted me to talk about the history of the Pioneer plaque. Remember the Pioneer plaque that Carl Sagan got on both early Pioneer spacecraft? Sure. Yeah. What most people don't realize is that that little plaque which was a very simple kind of crude hieroglyphic message with a couple of not quite stick figures, but outline drawings of a man and a woman mm -hmm. sans certain parts of their uh, anatomy, which caused great controversy standing in front of a stick figure looking like a dot with radiating lines with little squiggles next to the lines. Um, Eric Burgess and I were invited back in 1971 when we were waiting for the dust storm on Mars to clear and the first Mars orbiter, Mariner 9, to take pictures. Um, all we were seeing is these blank screens. And one of the JPL guys, you know, kind of coined a very interesting phrase. He said, well, maybe it was John Everhart. He was a friend of mine who wrote for Science uh, News, which was a really interesting, I guess it still is an interesting newsletter on science published by the National Science Foundation out of Washington. Anyway, I think it was Everhart who said, well, JPL is giving us, you know, pictures of sheets and then enhanced bed sheets because <laughs> we were seeing nothing. So we were bored. And uh, a guy named Pete Waller, who was a PR guy for TRW, kind of one afternoon made a, I guess, maybe it was morning. Yeah, it was morning. He made a circuit of the press room at Von Karman, the big auditorium where thousands of press people would gather when NASA would do a mission to someplace. And he kind of walked around the auditorium and he said, who wants to go and see the Pioneer 10 spacecraft? And, of course, we were all bored to tears. and We all said, we do, we do. So they actually put us all on buses, I think two or three buses of press people going from Pasadena all the way down the San Diego freeway to Redondo Beach, which is a pretty fair hike there in Los Angeles. And they took us into this series of big kind of low white buildings with huge domes sticking out the top and the domes turned out to be vacuum tanks where NASA would put spacecraft or the contractors would put their spacecraft and subject them to you know low temperatures and no air and day night cycles and all this and they brought all us guys in and they set us around in this in this big kind of hangar with this dome on top and they let us walk up this this ladder, this kind of like one of those high school ladders and high school gyms that went clang, clang, clang with the trolley. And they let us go up and peer in through a foot-wide quartz window into this vacuum tank that was painted pitch black inside <clears throat> so that you could mirror uh, what's called black body radiation. Mm -hmm. And the walls were cooled with, I guess, liquid nitrogen or something. So they were like 300 degrees below zero. 
And uh, we looked through this window and the lights were on. And I saw this incredible, it looked like a praying mantis sprayed with gold, all covered up with all the booms and all the other things kind of pulled up tight. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm the only guy standing up there because everyone, they could only let one guy at a time go up this ladder. By the way, they're all guys. Back in those days, there were no women covering science. So it was all guys. And I was standing there looking through, I hear the famous Zippo. Um, <laughs> I was looking through this quartz port and I had this sudden chilling feeling. And I knew I was looking at a piece of human technology, a construct, a piece of art and science from Earth that was going to go to Jupiter and then make a left-hand turn and the gravity of Jupiter would give it so much velocity, like they call it a, a slingshot maneuver, that mm -hmm. it would be ejected from the solar system forever. And I'm standing there knowing all this, looking at this, and I thought, oh my God, it needs to carry a message. Right. It was humankind's first emissary into the dark. The first thing that we as a species, now I know, of course, in the modern era, because back then I didn't know about you know, ancient, ancient ET history in the solar system. But I'm standing there looking, and I went down the ladder, clang, clang, clang. And at the bottom of the ladder was Eric Burgess, who was a friend of mine, and he was a very in incredible science writer. He was, he was British. He'd kind of, you know, became an expat, moved to uh, a little town, Northridge, north of Los Angeles. And um, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he'd been up before me, and he was kind of waiting there for me to come down. And I said, Eric, it has to carry, and he finished the sentence, a message. We both had the same thought. So then we had to go and find somehow someone with some influence who could literally get this done, because I think they were going to launch in like a month or so, or maybe a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea whether it was practical, whether the bureaucracy of NASA could in, in any way, shape, or form do something on such a short time scale. Plus, there was the problem of the weight. Because as you know, I'm saying some of this for the audience who may not, um, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the technology back then was so primitive that, uh, okay, I am doing that, Keith. I'm actually doing, doing uh, uh, things here and behind the scenes while we're trying to get blog talk back while I'm talking. Anyway, so we're looking at each other and we're saying, well, how can we get this done? How can we get this done? <clears throat> and they taken us there in the morning, and then they were giving us lunch. This was TRW, you know, mm -hmm. which was a major private contractor in the early days of the space age, and they were the ones building for NASA the Pioneer 10 spacecraft. So we went cruising around the cafeteria, and we finally spotted a guy named, I think, uh, Don Baines. No, I, oh, no, I'm sorry. It, it, it was Pete Waller. Pete Waller again, the guy that brought us down, who was the PR guy for TRW. And we said to him, we laid this idea out, and he kind of looked at us like, like we were <clears throat> Martians. He didn't get it at all. It went mm -hmm. right over his head and kept going past mm -hmm. Jupiter and making the left-hand turn. It was so stunning to me that a guy whose job was to basically get publicity for his company for this mission, he didn't understand. I mean, he really did not grok an old Heinlein term, how this would open up discussion and all that. So we're looking around and we're looking around we find Don Bain, who was the uh, science uh, reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And we laid the whole thing on him. 
And we're sitting at these like picnic tables in the cafeteria at TRW. And the food was awful, by the way. <clears throat> and Don said, well, the only guy I know that can get this done would be Carl Sagan. And he said, you know, Carl is holding a, 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 a kind of a seminar up at JPL this afternoon in the auditorium. And Keith, uh, and, Keith and uh, uh, Eric and I looked at each other and we said, oh, my God, we've got to go buttonhole Carl Sagan. So we raced back up the San Diego freeway to JPL. Uh, we sat through Carl's presentation, which was really kind of cool because he would sit kind of leaning back in a chair with all the reporters, maybe two or three dozen surrounding him, just kind of like a, a you know graduate seminar. And he just would kind of you know free associate. He'd talk about this and he'd talk about that and all that. And so we sat through all this. And then when his thing was over, he went out into the uh, Andy room there at JPL, which is this big, huge glass paneled atrium, which has a little museum off on the left-hand side where there are models of previous NASA spacecraft that have gone various interesting places. Like there was a surveyor there and there was a Ranger spacecraft on wires kind of hung on the ceiling and all that. So we get a couple of cups of coffee and we kind of back him into a corner by the surveyor and we laid this idea on him. And he looked at me and he looked at Eric and he said, and you know how Carl used to grin? He had that really interesting infectious grin. And he said, Oh, what a nice idea. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of a cottage industry that's now been putting messages on all kinds of spacecraft. And this individual named Trevor was able to get messages put on an Earth orbiting geosynchronous satellite, which will, at least under his model, survive the death of the Earth. It'll be one of the last objects destroyed when the sun expands as a uh, you know red giant in five billion or so years so he was going for real 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 longevity plus the idea that someone could find it because we all knew sagan and eric and me that even if you put a message on pioneer 10 the odds that aliens or ets mm -hmm. will ever find it mm -hmm. is like you know zero point zero 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 and you just keep going because as uhuru said in star trek it's a big galaxy mr scott <clears throat> so what happens many years later gene roddenberry in one of his sequel movies he has a rogue klingon literally with a spacecraft go and shoot you know and destroy in a flash of flame and exploding debris the pioneer spacecraft so there goes our message in a bottle so i've been kind of interested in this idea of long-term messages mm -hmm. um what was it that kind of sparked sparked your interest about elon musk because we were all told that in addition to the red tesla which we can mm -hmm. talk about and the controversy surrounding it that in the glove compartment or as the brits say the <laughs> glove box there is in essence another message in a bottle and wow. you and you wrote about this so mm -hmm. pick it up from there well, let me let me back up to address the message in the bottle theory itself, because I have a slightly different theory as to why these messages may ultimately have been approved to be put on these probes. And I talked about this back at the Secret Space Program conference in, in 2015. The the 
ancient cosmic war that I think was fought may have had what I call a Versailles template functioning afterwards. Oh, well, well, you well, you've got to describe what that means. Versailles template? I, I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was just about to. If you go back to World War I and look at what the Allies did to Germany after World War I, they put a kind of a quarantine zone around Germany. They insisted on the demilitarization of the Rhineland plus about a 30-kilometer depth zone on the east bank of the Rhine had to be demilitarized. And, of course, what they were trying to do was push back the jumping-off point of any future German mobilization against the West. And I think that there may be a case to be made for a similar quarantine zone in this solar system after that cosmic war that I've written about. Because if you look at... No, wait, wait, wait. The cosmic war that you and I are talking about is like 66 million years old? It could be. That's one date. I, I have a much more recent date, but but the date here isn't as important as the idea of, of the of the quarantine zone. Because if you look at texts like the uh, Slavonic text of Enoch, what it tells you is that there's a kind of a quarantine zone, and I'm quoting the, the actual text here, at the sphere of the moon. In other words, just like the Allies did with the Rhine River, they took a significant topographical feature that everybody knew and could recognize and, and then based their quarantine zone on definitions of that topographical feature. Well, the sphere of the moon, I think, means the orbit of the oh, moon. Oh, cislunar space. Yeah. From Earth exactly. out 240,000 miles, you can go, right. but no further. No further. So but wait, 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 wait. We've sent all kinds of stuff much further. I know, but I'm, I'm getting back to the message. Okay. Uh, the, the message of, you know, we come in peace for all mankind, all of this sort of stuff when we land on the moon. I think that maybe some of these people in the national security state were willing to put messages on these things simply because they may have recognized some of these ancient texts and a possible quarantine zone. In other words, are we in treaty violation if we go out there? And that's a way of, of forestalling any possible thing like that, which brings us to Elon Musk. Mm. Um, the thing that interest, intrigued me, Richard, about Musk is, first of all, you're spending a lot of money in effect, for a stunt. Uh, you're, well, you're sending... wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you there. It's not really a stunt because it's a signal in the noise. I mean, Elon actually tweeted this morning almost like he was reading what we were going to talk about tonight. And, and, and I don't have it handy in front of me. I may be able to go find it. But the gist of it was that, you know, life is more than just solving problems. You have to do something for humanity. You have to do something for... Uh, you know, fun and giggles or, you know, to, to, to get up in the morning. Um, and so he tweets the idea that the reason for the red Tesla is because he could have used, you know, inert mass to test the lifting power of the heavy Falcon heavy rocket. Instead, he chose something which obviously is the biggest PR for any car company you would ever imagine. All right. And it's a forever object. It's going to be circling the sun for millions of years, if not billions. And it's 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 a it's a piece of humanity which is so recognizable and so iconic. I mean, at, on on the other side of midnight.com, if you go to the website and you click on tonight's uh, banner, 
the third link down, forget the second link for a minute. The third one down is the live views of his Starman uh, little little android robot, um, mannequin actually, in a real spacesuit behind the wheel of his Tesla with the don't panic sign on the dashboard. And it was it got so much more excitement around his launch than if he'd launched a big chunk of concrete. Well, yeah, but getting back to the, And to he the didn't have was, to do anything to pre- prepare the uh, the roadster. In other words, there was no space preparation involved. It was just bolted to the top of the rocket and they put the nose cone on and bingo, there you go. So it wasn't it wasn't something that a lot of engineers had to worry about. Well, getting getting back to where I was trying to go, I I still do view it as a stunt. But my problem with it is, do you spend all that money to put something up there and not try to put either a package of equipment on that roadster or do you put something else in it? And the something else revealed itself, I think, about a week or so after the launch when it was revealed that a small new type of artificial quartz disk for data storage was taken up there. And at the time I thought, gee, that's interesting because this little disk can store enormous amounts of data. And we've speculated, you know, you and I and other people about crystal and data storage for quite quite some time. And this has an enormous data capability. I think it was something like thank you for 10, using blog talk radio. 10, Goodbye. Ten regular um, ten regular discs or something like that to this tiny, tiny little disc, a little a little bit bigger than a quarter. So I thought, well, that's a perfect way to send up all sorts of messages. You know, you can put all sorts of data. But then on the other hand, I got to thinking, well, it's also a perfect way to be writing a lot of data to something if there should be any sort of instrument package on that roadster that we don't know about. So I have I have my suspicions that maybe this was more than just a PR thing for, for the Tesla Roadster and for the SpaceX company. There's something else going on. And in that week that that story came out, the other thing that was amazing to me was that Musk's company launched a couple of military satellites for guess who? The Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. <laughs> really? I, yes. I thought, gee, you know, the mouse that I roared. I was just going to say know. the mouse that roared. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that's the first thing that came to my mind, Richard, is you had, you know, you've had those two novels by Leonard Wiberley about the Grand Duchy of Fenwick, you know. Yeah. And didn't wrote. they do two movies? They did a couple of movies with Peter Sellers. They were really bad movies. They weren't nearly as entertaining as the novels. But uh, you know, Peter Sellers the, could read the phone book again. Back to my opening. Yeah, you know. that's true. But the second of those novels was, you know, the Mouse on the Moon. That that this tiny yeah. little Grand Duchy in Europe actually goes to the moon, and uh, that that launch really kind of amazed me because the satellite packages themselves were just stock full of sensing equipment and communications equipment and you know if you've been watching the grand duchy of luxembourg they're very very deeply involved in uh, figuring out new things for space law uh, how to how to commercialize space what what is going to be our financial clearing system (laughs) so in other words within a week of the spacex tesla launch we had that launch of two satellites by 
uh, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg and by SpaceX. So yeah, I think there's every possibility that we might be looking at a, you know more than just a PR stunt. There may be a message in the bottle in that quartz disk. There may be sensory equipment that can take data and write to some of those disks. We don't know, but I, I strongly suspect that we're looking at least at some sort of message in the bottle scenario if not more well i'll tell you what we're at the bottom of the hour and blog talk <laughs> is iffy we're gonna we're gonna do a test here and see if blog talk is working um so why don't we hold it there because i have a few interesting tidbits about the uh, the tesla and musk's agenda that you may not be up on which i will share with you after we come back so everyone just kind of hold it there we're at the bottom of the hour um my guest this morning is dr joseph farrell and we're definitely going to be uh, talking about some really interesting stuff because I've been totally fascinated since long before I got uh, involved in the idea of interplanetary messages. I've been very intrigued with the idea of messages down through time because as part of our work, you know, our hyperdimensional work and our um, looking for objects on the moon and artificial things on Mars and elsewhere in the solar system. The idea, the huge idea is we've got to find the libraries. I just think it very interesting that Musk on his first big rocket, which is going to take humans all kinds of interesting places, including maybe around the moon, civilian humans, that he puts a space library in the Tesla. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars, or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins. If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell, automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members, 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members 
and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, they've really kind of done it to us on Blog Talk because no promos are working. And somehow, whoever these bad guys are, they reached into Chris's computer, and he can't seem to be working with promos either. Boy, they're really out to get you tonight, Joseph. <laughs> Doesn't that make you feel real warm and fuzzy all over? They're out to get you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, but you're the guest. I mean, they haven't done this when I did a couple of shows a couple of weeks ago. They didn't bother. So it's got to be. Okay, so let me let me go back to where we were before the, mm, the non-existent break. Um, Musk did not put, of all things, a radio tracking beacon on the Tesla, mm -hmm. which I found really interesting. Because if anybody ever wanted in future years, you know, to be able to track this thing and see how close it was going to come to Mars, because one of the things you don't want to do when you launch something like this, which was basically right off his garage floor, there was no decontamination, there was no biological, you know, uh, Cylon gas or ways to kill microbes. The thing was, you know, it, it's messy as hell. It's loaded with earth bugs, right? So the last thing you want is for it to, in its endless orbit around the sun, wind up knocking into into Mars. And you certainly don't want, um, you know, it is hitting the earth uh, in a few, you know, hundred years, because who knows how those weird guys might mutate. So the numbers now say that it's not going to hit the earth for millions of years. And apparently it's in such an orbit that it can never hit Mars, although I don't quite believe the, the never. But not having a beacon seems kind of weird to me because everything in space has a beacon. So why didn't he put a beacon? So that to me tells me he didn't want it to be found by Earth guys. Okay. Now, it was tracked by telescopes. There's a whole new craze, you know, that we're not launching anything, that the Earth is flat. I want to talk about that a bit later this morning with you. 
But one of the ways that we know this thing is out there is that guys with telescopes on various parts of the world have actually been taking um, uh, blog talk. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not blog talk, but, but have been taking telescopic images mm -hmm. and putting them on the Internet. So you can see this little bright dot. Actually, it's not that bright moving across the star field. And that is the trajectory, the actual booster. Apparently, they also cut loose the Tesla from the second stage. So the Tesla is now tumbling gently in orbit around the sun that reaches out toward the asteroid belt, doesn't quite reach it, goes back in just inside the orbit of Earth, and it will endlessly cycle for millions of years, not hitting anything that the calculations you know, are, are, are seeing. And it has no beacons. So if anybody's going to find it, they're going to have to be really, really, really good at finding a red Tesla in the middle of space with only radar or, or some kind of uh, active system on the spacecraft. But it doesn't have a beacon, so it can't tell you. And it had no solar power. Remember how the big right. thing was he was going to be playing, uh, um, what was it, David Bowie, you know, Earth to Major, uh, Major Tom, endlessly on a loop? Well, that only was going to work for like about 12 hours until the batteries ran down. So none of this seemed to be preparation for the immediate human audience. Those little discs, those those quartz discs that have on them. You might want to mention what, what ostensibly he put on those discs to be forever immortalized in space. Well, as I recall, he put he said something to the effect of this is a library. A space uh, I, library, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I have to wonder again, are we being told everything? You know, we're being told he doesn't have another power source. We're being told he doesn't have a radio beacon. But again, I, you know me, my suspicion meter is in the red zone uh, when I read that bit about the disks. I, I wouldn't rule out those things just because he, he doesn't say that they're there. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a library. And he used that word very deliberately, I think, in one of his tweets or something. And again, that kind of raised my eyebrows because there was some talk a few years ago, uh, and I even blogged about that at the time, that they're trying to set up a, a kind of uh, a library of human knowledge on the moon. There was some talk of this. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's this idea of archiving things in space for whatever reason. But, again, you and I are both suspicious enough about things that, that people have been finding on the moon and Mars to wonder if maybe not they're going after some of this stuff. But I, <laughs> well, but not, but not in Musk mission. And, not, and, not, not, in, not in a Tesla Roadster. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I thought it was a brilliant stroke of genius to launch his Tesla. Because involved in this, and then what the what the what's on the discs, the library, what's on these little quartz discs that, by the way, can apparently store um, the contents. I forget what's is extraordinary number, yep. seven thousand billion million terabytes or I mean, some in uh, god That's awful huge. huge. I mean, you could store every library on the planet on these discs. So I'm just wondering if that's what they did. Now, the only thing they talked about or he actually just tweeted about, was the three novels in Isaac Asimov's right. Foundation Trilogy. Right. Which was, right. Um, do you remember the, the titles? Uh, foundation, Foundation and Empire, and I think Second Foundation. Second Foundation, yes. Okay. I think this is an incredible secret message about something that I used to 
um, talk about with one of my, you know, kind of black ops, deep Intel guys, you know, mm-hmm. I used to call him deep space because he would give me this, this Intel out of the bowels of the Pentagon or the bowels of NASA. And most of it turned out to be pretty, pretty true. There was some stuff there that was not true, but it was kind of it's almost like he was forced to give me false stuff to satisfy whoever the people were that were looking over his shoulder. Anyway, I used to have long discussions with him about the Foundation Trilogy. And I said, coming up to the point in the physics now where, you know, everything is hitting the rotating kitchen appliance and there's all kinds of bizarre politics occurring on the earth and the physics is peaking we're coming up to a node it's when there's this this uh, war of the hearts and minds and souls of you know everybody in between and i'm looking at this and i'm saying well whoever set this system up going back to the great war there's the zippo again i love that sound of the zippo <laughs> everybody you know is looking at this and they're saying well is, is there a bigger picture and I have a mm-hmm, feeling that mm-hmm. rather than arriving at this point kind of at random, mm-hmm. that there has been a long-term ancient society. I don't want to call it secret because I think it's kind of secret in the, in the open. But you go back to the ancient Egyptians, and I got this idea from the Shem Suhor. Remember who the Shem mm-hmm. Suhor are, right? Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. followers of Horus. Okay. There are the fingerprints of the Shem Suhor all over everything Elon Musk does up to including starting by calling all his rockets Falcons, right? right? Falcons, Horus, Horus, Falcons. And then I started looking at the people that I've known in my somewhat brief life, you know, incredible people like Isaac Asimov, like um, Arthur Clarke, like Fred Pohl, like Bob Heinlein. Like, and I'm starting to wonder is the modern Shemsu Hor, the followers of Horus, whose mandate, as you remember from ancient uh, you know, Egyptian texts, was to basically try to restore the first time? Mm-hmm. What if there was this long-term society group? I don't know how it would even pass on information from generation to generation to generation. It would have to be something like a priesthood, right? Right, right. And the reason that Elon put the Foundation Trilogy in the damn Tesla Roadster is because I used to have this long set of conversations with my deep space guy that Isaac Asimov was the template for the modern Shemsu Hor. The whole mm-hmm. story of the Foundation, and mm-hmm. then the Foundation Empire, and then the second Foundation, where you hide the second Foundation in the place where it was least expected to be found. It was right. supposed to be at the other end of the galaxy on Trantor, and it turns out, I'm sorry I'm giving this away, guys, turns out to be a lot closer to where they were asking the questions. And I'm just wondering, did Elon do that as an inside joke message, nod of the you know tip of the cap, whatever you want to call it, to those people that are in the know that, in fact, he is Shem Suhor up to his eyebrows and that his could very foreign well company? Be, yeah. yeah, that could very well be. As you know, I've, I've had a similar idea that, in the aftermath of that cosmic war, you would have had to have had some sort of elites determined to preserve their knowledge, hand it down, and then jumpstart civilization once again. So that's always been kind of part of my thinking as well. So yeah, the the presence of the Foundation Trilogy, if you've ever read it with all of its overtones of societal collapse and then 
people reaching a technocratic state, which is so sophisticated that people forget how to do certain things and mm. it begins to fall apart. Yep. Know? Well, we're seeing that so, even now. Which, yeah, we're seeing that even now, precisely. And and again, this idea of putting a message in the bottle, putting a library up there, fits in with that whole foundation plot line very, very well, uh, because that's essentially what happens in the story itself. You have some reserved knowledge that's, that's secreted away somewhere, and it's designed precisely to jumpstart civilization once it reaches that technological pitch where things begin to break down. So yeah, the, all of this to me, you know, just like you, Richard, raised my eyebrows. What what's going on here with this? And uh, it's messages in the bottle, but the real question is messages to whom? And I think your uh, your hypothesis here is worth worth considering because it could be a message not to people out there, but to people down here. <laughs> well, when when Eric and I came up with the idea of the plaque. I remember some yeah. somebody, some, you know, maybe the New York Times or whatever, because I was at the Hayden Planetarium at that point in New York City. Mm. So I got a lot of press from major, you know, national media, wire services, Associated Press. Mm -hmm. And now one day somebody called me from the Times and they wanted me to go through the philosophy behind the plaque. And mm -hmm. I said, well, and Sagan totally agreed. I said, it's not really a message out there to aliens or whatever, because the odds of anybody finding it is, you know, point zero 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 zero. keep going with the zeros. I said it was a message to us. What mm -hmm. I wanted, what Eric wanted, was to make a statement that the U.S. government officially has put its imprimatur and its money behind the idea that there is someone else out there to talk to, even if it never reaches its audience. The very fact that we were able to get in the institutional memory the idea it's not a silly thing to think of writing to someone out there in a long, incredibly long span of future history, that to me was the major message. It was a message to mankind, not to aliens. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. No, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that hypothesis. I think, I think it's definitely a possibility in this case. You, you simply have to consider it, given Musk's own statement about putting a library up there, and then one of the things being precisely the Foundation trilogy, which, oh like you, oh my God, used, it was, was so like ding 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 was, ding. Yeah, it's, it's in your face in a certain sense. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, and like you, that's one of my favorite Asimov. Uh, now, now, the other rights. thing which makes it to me kind of closes the loop is if mm -hmm. you're leaving messages here on Earth mm -hmm. that you've done this, you know, like, like, remember, who was the guy building the 10,000 year clock? Oh, golly, I don't remember that guy. But, but it's actually being constructed right now. This is a mechanical mm -hmm. clock that's supposed to be working mm -hmm. off solar energy or changes in humidity or some way to transduce energy to keep the, the, the gears, you know, winded, right. wound. Winded? Boy, you didn't say that, Hogan, on a Saturday night. To keep the gearing wound so that it mm -hmm. will work for 10,000 years. The idea of future history, sending messages to our great-great-great-great-great-granddaughters or grandsons, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. if, if Musk's plan is two parts, which is you scatter around the Earth the idea that there's something really cool in a red Tesla orbiting the sun. I mean, how many red Teslas do you think that are great, great descendants are going to find orbiting the sun. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Exactly. So it becomes a signal in the noise. Now, right after it was launched, I saw a very wacko piece, something like some experts had decided that in a year, 
solar radiation will destroy it. And I'm thinking, what, what ignoramuses are these people? Because most of the stuff we're finding that I've been finding, you know, looking at the idea of ancient artifacts out there, mm-hmm. is made of carbon. It's made of carbon yes. nanofibers. Carbon is incredibly, you know, resilient. Yeah, the paint will go, but that Tesla itself will last for millions of years because there's nothing in space other than it hit something that's going to destroy it. Certainly not the radiation. I mean, the background radiation is so far below the level of causing material changes in, in the carbon fiber composites it's made of. So it will last and it will, it'll be unique and there'll be no doubt in anybody's mind. It's not a, you know, piece of natural stuff, a rock that somebody Mm -hmm. made this. And if you didn't wonder about that, there's a, there's a guy wearing a spacesuit sitting behind the wheel. (sighs) Redundancy. Right. So then the question is what else is on those discs? Cause I think it's something like 7,000 terabytes of storage. There's no computer on earth that you can buy at uh, Walmart that can play more than what, Chris, about 10 gigs. So who is, who is the intended audience and how will they know what to play if, and when they find it, if they find these little quartz discs, will they know what they are? Yeah. For me, that is the question. Um, You and I and others have speculated for a long time that, two things may be going on. We may have genetic cousins out there somewhere, uh, or we may have a secretive human presence on, on nearby celestial bodies or possibly both. Uh, so I, I think you'd have to consider at least one of those two options as part of the message. If there is a message here. And I think there is obviously. So it would, it would, to my mind have to boil down to one of those two things, or as you say, some, some message in the bottle to our distant descendants, you know, in the far future. Um, one of one of those three things. The other thing that's kind of making the rounds out there is when everybody uh, thinks time capsule, they think, why would you want to, why would you want to put a message in a bottle? And the obvious suggestion is, well, maybe everything here is going to go away. And this is kind of like, a, a, a message to the future after we're gone when our descendants or guys come to the solar system and they, you know, find it, it's much, it's much more likely someone will find this orbiting a star than something in interstellar space. But even then it's going to be incredibly, incredibly, um, you know, low probability of it being found unless someone is looking for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That that would imply that they've they've got some some uh, how to put it backup plan that would include sending messages and bottles and I don't know if that's making any sense but there's an interesting series out right now called Timeless about people traveling through time and in one episode they actually get stuck in time but the backup plan is that precisely they put literally a message in a bottle and they bury it. And it's oh. dug up, <laughs> yeah. It's dug up, uh, you know, a couple centuries later in in modern times, so that they can rescue the team that they've sent back. Why are so, we so fascinated, Joseph, with the idea of time travel? I mean, of all the science fiction concepts, <clears throat> you know, other colonies meeting aliens, meeting Type Threes that control whole galaxies. 
the thing that seems to wind up in mainstream television now and yep. in movies again and again and again is the idea of time travel, even though our physicists say, oh, that's the one thing we can't do. You know, Hawking right. says, oh, you can't. Do well, you can use relativity, but that's kind of one way. But this idea of time, why are we so mesmerized by time travel? I think it's because ultimately it, it gives us a reassurance, if it's possible, of, of the conquest of death. It gives us a reassurance of, of immortality. Um, I, think, I think, in other words, that the foundation for the fascination is ultimately spiritual. But uh, it could be that you're dealing with people that have some sort of backup plan that, yeah, we need to send messages in the bottle in case things go haywire here. Uh, and that was precisely, if I recall, the reasoning behind the moon archive that was being discussed by the Vatican and some other people a few years back. This was precisely their thinking that, you know, we need to do this in case some cataclysm happens. So, we're, you know, we're back to that cosmic war model. Everything goes to hell in a handbasket. We've blown apart our infrastructure. What do we do now? Well, we have to preserve our knowledge and jumpstart civilization, which is exactly what I think they did. But uh, that was their backup plan, so to speak. And I think I think you're looking at it again. Hmm. By the way, uh, Kintia has been very busy behind the scenes. She's added a whole bunch of your books, ending with <laughs> Tess and the Penguins, which I find probably the, one of the best titles apart from my own works that I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> and there apparently, I'm looking for it now, there is a link with the, uh, with the chip showing the actual little discs, the story on yes. the discs, which yes. I'm, I'm, I can't quite find it, but uh, she says it's there, so if she says it's there... Like uh, when Kirk said, I saw McCoy put it in. It's got to be there, even if I can't find it. Let me let me call attention to link number two, because we've got about uh, eight minutes to the top of the hour. Mm -hmm. um, go to link number two. What do you think? We haven't talked since this thing happened. Last October, we had an extraordinary object come through the solar system that mm -hmm. I can absolutely prove, and I will do it tonight on live radio, is or was an interstellar message in a bottle aimed at us. And what I'm talking about is a Muamua, which was this object that came zipping through the solar system at hypervelocities, well in excess of anything that would remain captured by the sun. It came out of the direction of Lyra and then disappeared into the darkness in the direction of Pegasus. Both <laughs> constellations really important. Any thoughts on Oumuamua, my friend? I didn't follow that story close enough to, to have any thoughts other than, and I noticed you put this up in your link, apparently there were Russians that were claiming this thing was giving off radio signals. No, 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 hoping it was. Hoping it and was. And they were going to listen. They actually got right. time on the uh, uh, Green Bank Telescope there outside Washington, D.C., for like 10 or 12 hours of listening time. And they were planning to do it over several weeks. And once they announced doing that and their first listening session, mm -hmm. all discussion of what they heard went away. Stopped. Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, that tells me they probably heard something. <laughs> I don't think they did. And I'll tell you why. Really? First of all, let me tell you why I know incontrovertibly this thing was an interstellar message in a bottle. Because it entered the solar system from the direction of Lyra, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with Lyra and ancient civilizations up to and including 
the whole story of the Pleiadians. Remember the Billy Meyer story and our great, great ancestors hang out at, at Lyra and that kind of thing. That's, that's, that's one data point. The other is when you, when you do a celestial mechanics calculation for objects, whether they're attached to the sun or they're kind of freewheeling, there's something called the eccentricity of the orbit. Orbit, right. Everything under one, like 0.9999, which expresses the ellipticity or the egg-shapedness of the orbit. Is that mm -hmm. a term, egg-shapedness? Well, it is now. Anyway, it expresses that if it's below one, like 0.9999999, it's still attached to the sun. So it's part of the solar system's, you know, comet cloud or asteroid debris or whatever. This object had an eccentricity greater than one, one huh. point something, something, something. And I'll get to the somethings in a moment. And that instantly told me and everybody else, this thing is the first hyper velocity object entering from interstellar space because it can't be captured. Once it goes around mm -hmm. the sun, it leaves nothing unless it encountered like Jupiter or something and exchange momentum, which it didn't. It would basically be a one-time whip around and then back out into space. And when it was closer to the sun, it was moving at something like 55 miles per second. That's really moving. Yeah. Now, the way I knew it was sent to us and was not a comet or not an asteroid, in fact, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, had to coin a whole new term to fit to this one object as the first recognized interstellar vehicle or, or object, not vehicle, they would never use that term, interstellar visitor ever. The eccentricity for this object, Joseph, ready, drum roll, 1.195. Oh, my word. <laughs> and it's rotating <laughs> in 19.5, I'm sorry, seven hours, 19.5 minutes. <laughs> which is multiple tetrahedral redundancy, you know, the seven symmetry spins of the tetrahedron. Now it's rotating along the long axis? Uh, no, along around the, the short axis. So it's, okay. it's spinning, but it's not even doing that anymore. The latest versions, there was some astronomer at Caltech, I think, who took all the light curves from all the measurements as this thing, because everybody dropped everything and all the biggest telescopes on Earth were focused and all you could see was a point of light in the world's biggest telescope because it's only something like 1,400 feet long. Mm -hmm. But it's 10 times to maybe 20 times, my favorite is 19.5 times, longer than it is wide. <laughs> okay. So you mm -hmm. want more redundancies? This is a hyperdimensional tetrahedral message, boys and girls. And the, the, the guy at Caltech, he's looking at all these light curves and nothing matches. Like it's not rotating stably, it's tumbling. Now, how can you get an object that's been in interstellar space for God knows how long? I mean, estimates for millions to billions of years in a kind of a random walk around the galaxy till it encountered our sun again by accident. That's the mainstream model. How do you get it to tumble? Well, the mainstream says it had to have been hit by mm -hmm. a collision in its mm -hmm. home solar system before it was ejected into interstellar space and wandered around until it found us, you know, all the gin joints and all the universe, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but then this guy, this Caltech guy, he put together all these light curves and he notices something interesting that the light curves don't match. So it can't be rotating smoothly. It's got to be tumbling. 
And then his model is it's long and thin and it's kind of neutral gray, but it's got a big reddish spot on one side. <laughs> and what does that make you think of? Huh. Yeah, Jupiter. Or, or it was an object that got nuked. And the, yeah, in, could be too. the folks inside who used to be living beings, maybe in stasis, maybe in suspended animation, they're now spread and the film outside on the outside of this thing mm -hmm. as a spot where it was nuked because it was supposed to be carrying messages for humankind. And the guys who were controlling Earth right now, they don't want any of those damn messages or whatever else it might have done. And they killed it with some kind of active interference uh, via the secret space program we're not supposed to know which doesn't use rockets like Elon did but uses anti-gravity and torsion uh, torsion field physics from Tor T. Townsend Brown etc etc so that's my you know story and I'm sticking to it it was a message to humankind from humankind and the bad guys went out and they killed it what do you think could be could be, which would also indicate if that's the case, they have some very deep uh, sensory capabilities and probably a very deep penetration out there if they were aware of this thing to go out and do that. Well, it also was found when it was 19.5 million uh, miles from Earth, which is no. not really, they had to know about it before and they announced it, right. et cetera, right. et cetera. Okay, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Joseph Farrell. We're having a very interesting time trying to make blog talk work. We'll see if that's working now. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. 
We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.